0: The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says that limiting global warming by 1.5 degrees Celsius will require rapid, far reaching, and unprecedented changes in all aspects of society transitions in land, energy, industry, buildings, transport, and cities. For decades, leaders have been advocating for a transition away from fossil fuels and towards renewable, cleaner energy. They are starting to speak louder as a COVID-19 recovery offers a fresh start.
1: It's a movement that's gaining momentum across the globe. The
2: IPCC report coming out of the UN is sounding the alarm on what will happen if we do not keep emissions down. As
1: people fight for a cleaner, fairer future.
2: To contain our warming levels below 1.5 degrees Celsius.
0: In this episode of Think Sustainability, We look at how a post-COVID economy can serve the interests of the planet, and how to take lessons learnt from one crisis and apply them to the next. I'm Julia Karkatzel.
1: Those images out of the bushfire crisis, now subsumed to some extent by the pandemic, do tell the story very powerfully that that I think moves Australians more than the somewhat distant National Geographic image of the polar bear.
0: Bob Carr is the former and longest-serving Premier of New South Wales and former Foreign Minister of Australia. Professor Carr now works with the University of Technology's Institute for Sustainable Futures and School of Business on climate change research and policy. He says policymakers simply need to remember the horrors of Australia's black summer bushfire season to realize how pressing a crisis global warming is.
1: An image that made us all think when we saw it of how climate change is with us now namely the family the families on a beach on the New South Wales south coast with the forest blazing and the air full of smoke and flame that i think worked to persuade a lot of australians that this is how we live now the climate shift is upon us and it's having effects
0: some have said that our economic recovery from covid provides a once in a lifetime opportunity for decarbonisation do you agree
1: yes i do there's a lot in that make it the government's got to invest big in sustaining this economy in these unprecedented conditions there should be a distinct bias in government investment towards sustainability. We're going to have to meet this cost anyway. Let's meet it as part of a as part of the strategy of maintaining economic activity when the economy is being driven towards recession or worse as a result of this unique pandemic. So
2: COVID shows that we can work together, um, we can do things differently and it's an opportunity where we need to invest to create new jobs. So it actually makes it a really important opportunity for climate action.
0: Sarah Fumay is a project manager at Climate Works Australia.
2: And it's an important opportunity that we can't afford to miss because if we start taking action in 10 or 20 years time, it will be too late. So now is really the time to do it.
0: The independent, non-for-profit organisation supports key sectors shift to low emissions, working towards a larger goal of achieving net zero.
2: The way things have always been done kind of impedes our ability to go ahead with things that we can actually achieve. And I think that's true for climate change action as well. Part of that is that under the Paris Agreement, we know that we need to limit our emissions to net zero by 2050 and that in order to do that, we need to transform our economy. Um, and as a result of the pandemic, governments at all levels are thinking about how best to invest to restart our economy. Businesses are thinking about how to ensure they'll be resilient to future shock shocks. Um, and aligning what we do in the pandemic with this 2015 net zero goal is actually a really good way to do both of those things.
0: Yeah, I think maybe it's just a good opportunity. Dr Deborah Cotton is a senior lecturer in the Finance Discipline Group at UTS Business School. She says, as we attempt to recover from the economic shock of COVID-19, we can echo responses to past crises, such as government spending to stimulate the economy after the GFC. And
3: the stimulus there was in the housing and construction sectors. So if you might recall, uh, the government spent quite a lot on infrastructure spending in schools. So lots of new buildings were built in a whole lot of schools um, all around the country. So they have thought um, previously about this idea of infrastructure and investing in that, certainly. And that's where I really see it being important here.
0: Experts are now calling for government investment into greener technologies. Deborah says this could come in the form of a clean energy stimulus package.
3: So we certainly have a lot of work to do in terms of energy storage um, and generally the infrastructure around the green technologies. We could look at a number of different ways. So we could put it, look at wind and solar, hydro, but it really would enable us or the government to have this kind of two-pronged benefit in a way stimulate the economy in terms of employment, which is what they did after the GFC. But also we've got this double benefit, really, haven't we, for a healthier planet, again for the future generations.
0: Professor Carr agrees. He says the most essential climate policy would be to build a secure transmission system and battery storage capacity that enables renewable power to flow to customers.
1: We've got a great surge in renewables, a huge investment in renewables, uh, that's taking place. Renewables are pretty diverse. Um, you can have wind farms right across right across Australia um, and solar panels as well. They can be as diverse as being on every rooftop. So you've got a different demand on a grid um, because the grid we've got was built to take power from half a dozen big power stations in New South Wales or Victoria, and to get it to consumers. Um, only six, say, six locations being serviced by that grid. Now, now they're diffuse, they're everywhere. Um, and, and so that's why investment in a different and better and more wide-reaching grid is important. And then we, we need to store power so that it's there, ready to be accessed, even when the wind's not blowing or the sun's not shining.
0: But building a robust electricity grid drawing on wind and solar energy is no easy feat. And the coalition government is continuing to push for fossil fuels, saying they will play an important role in balancing renewable energy. The paper claims to drive investment in low emissions technologies to strengthen the economy and support jobs and businesses, a key priority on the road to recovery from COVID-19. The document says wind and solar energy are cheapest, but has emphasised gas as an important transition fuel.
3: You know, and and gas is important not just because it's lower emissions, it's important because it's flexible and it's very complementary with renewables like solar and wind. So when the sun goes down uh, and your solar soils aren't working, of course, uh, then you've got a source of energy that can replace them, uh, that can step up.
0: Mr Taylor says gas development plays an essential role in energy reliability, but there have been mixed reactions from the community.
1: What I see happening in Canberra is that they've pivoted away from coal because apart from a few backbenchers, the government realises... Coal-fired power is just not tenable economically and environmentally. But they've sort of rested as if on a stepping stone across a creek on gas. Gas will be the transition. We've got satellites circling the, the globe, wheeling around the globe, now picking up evidence of gas or methane in the atmosphere. And the figures are very disturbing. And I think when the world meets in climate summits, there's going to be a lot of focus on this evidence. And there's simply not room in the thin filigree of air that surrounds the planet for more methane. The fact is that gas leaks. And recently, according to Reuters, um, one satellite, one of the European satellites, as it happened, picked up huge plumes of invisible methane gushing out of a a pipeline running from Siberia into Europe. Um, And one of the plumes was equivalent to the carbon dioxide released by 15,000 cars a year. There's another study, an international study, that suggests that 3.7% of the total production from America's huge Permian Basin, that's in Texas and Oklahoma, The US gets 30% of its gas and oil from that basin. But 3.7% of it is leaking into the upper atmosphere. Gas leaks. It's what gas does. And methane is much more destructive than carbon dioxide. Over 30% more destructive. Um, And that's the restraint on gas.
0: Sarah says the time has passed for gas to be used as a transition fuel. Climate action
2: hasn't been as um, fast in the past decade as we need it to have been. So the delayed action means that we've now kind of got less carbon budget to spend between now and 2050. Um, We're also more aware of the impact of climate change on economy and society. So we know that there's um, more agreement for aiming towards 1.5 degrees of warming and that's further reducing the carbon budget and that gas has a higher emissions um, intensity than previously thought. So we think that all those things mean that the gas isn't necessarily a useful transition fuel. Um, However, we will still need fuels in gas form. So increasingly, we'll see a transition from natural gas to hydrogen and biogas. And we know that these, we we can implement these at scale and for hydrogen, we think that's probably within the next 10 years or so. Um, And so the industry is already working on plans for this. And um, I think we need to think about the fact that if any asset is built today, using natural gas, we need to have a plan for how it will transition to zero emissions alternatives within its lifespan.
0: The Global Sustainable Development Report 2020, released in June, ranks Australia third among OECD countries for the effectiveness of its response to the COVID-19 pandemic. But Australia only ranked 37th in the world on its overall progress in achieving the United Nations' Sustainable Development Goals. Australia's worst results are in climate action and the environment. Professor Carr says the international community may penalise Australia for its slow pace on climate action.
1: It looks like the Europeans are moving towards climate tariffs. So they will exclude, they will penalise the exports of a country that is lagging on climate the way Australia chooses to be. And that means uh, trying to export um, anything related to carbon will see the Australian, Austra- the Australian product disadvantage compared with countries that are delivering delivering action on climate. I just noticed yesterday that Japan had closed 100 out of 140 units of coal-fired power generation. They say units, that's more or less a a power station, a mass closure of them, as Japanese investors take account of the trend away from carbon, from coal. Um, So the Europeans... Will reward that sort of behaviour and penalise Australia, saying, "Well, yeah, we've got to get out of coal, but we're going to we're going to subsidise gas on a huge scale, when we know that gas at unacceptable rates is leaking, leaking into the upper atmosphere." Um, the U.S. is attracted to carbon tariffs as well, and under a Biden administration, that could very easily become a reality. and And Washington likes them because it's a way of it's a way of excluding imports or penalising imports from China and India, um, which from an American perspective, both countries fall short of what the, the developed world is doing. So we could fi- find ourselves hurt.
2: And we also know that the world is moving towards net zero. So if Australian governments and businesses invest in projects and initiatives aligned with this goal... We can create ongoing jobs and new industries, um, but if we invest in carbon intensive activity, we risk assets becoming stranded and losing jobs in the future. So it's a really important opportunity and it's one that we need to take up now.
0: A 2050 net zero goal is exactly what independent MP Zali Stegel is putting forward to federal parliament. Ms Stegall successfully won the seat of Warringah at the 2019 federal election on the issue of climate. Former Prime Minister Tony Abbott has conceded defeat in Warringah to independent Zali Stegall. She says the people have voted for their future.
2: I will be a climate leader for you. (laughs)
3: to account and make sure we take action on climate change. <laughs> Mr. Abbott can she is
0: now putting forward legislation called the Climate Change National Framework for Adaptation and Mitigation Bill, which aims to place an emissions reductions focus on all the federal government's legislation. Professor Carr says it's essential.
1: And I think a majority of Australians would want to see it. It means in statutory form, that is a, an act of the parliament, the federal government being held to account for the contribution it makes towards the build-up of these heat-trapping gases around the earth.
0: As the government continues to move at what some call a snail pace on climate, the private sector appears to be picking up the slack.
1: The boardrooms and the investment banks the insurance companies, are moving faster than the Australian government and the US government, of course, under Donald Trump, because they see the danger of being stuck with stranded assets. In short, if you think the world in the 2020s, 2030s is gonna have to take drastic action to keep warming below 1.5 degrees, then you're at risk if you've made a commitment to a gas project or a thermal coal project that's only going to achieve a return if it's got 40 years of operation ahead of it.
0: Members of some of Australia's big four banks, such as the National Australia Bank, Commonwealth Bank and a number of superannuation funds, have signed up to the Australian Sustainable Finance Initiative, established to realign the finance sector to support social, environmental and economic outcomes for the country
1: on the business sector, the the big four Australian banks have got out of coal. I think one of them, the Commonwealth from memory, has gone from having hundreds of millions in coal to having a mere 50 million. They won't put money into something like the huge coal mine proposed by Adani in central Queensland. Um, So this is taking place while the Australian government tries to look the other way.
0: Professor Carr says the COVID-19 crisis hasn't deterred these businesses from divesting in coal.
1: And even while this COVID-19 pandemic is upon us, it's striking how many banks, insurance companies, European um, uh, energy majors are making a decision to restructure. Allianz, for example, a, a huge insurer. And investor in its own right, is saying we won't put money into thermal coal, not even into the infrastructure that services thermal coal, like a rail line or a port. That's that's now forbidden. We won't do it. And to have BP and Royal Dutch Shell um, say, no, no, Total, another European oil and gas major, um, we're executing a pivot away from carbon means that there won't be investment flowing into these sectors in Australia.
0: Sarah from Climate Works says businesses across many sectors are working towards lower emissions targets.
2: There are leaders across all of the different sectors of the economy who are working to reduce their emissions and have goals for net zero by 2050. One sector where Australia is considered an international leader is the property sector. So, for example, over a third of the companies signed up to the World Green Building Council's global net zero carbon buildings commitment are Australian-owned or have a large proportion of their operations in Australia. DEXIS is Australia's largest owner and manager of office property and has committed to achieve net zero emissions across its property portfolio by 2030. In transport, Qantas became the second airline group in the world to commit to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. That covers both its flights, its supporting ground activities, and includes a commitment to keep the organisation's emissions from domestic and international flights at 2020 levels. Across different sectors, we're seeing companies kind of start thinking about what can they do to reduce their own emissions and what can they do to reduce the impact of their operations more broadly.
0: Deborah says there is much to learn from Australia's response to COVID-19. I think probably
3: one of the key things that I take from our COVID response is this bipartisan support. So the government of the day seemed to be able to come to agreement. So the Liberal and Labor parties, you know, our dominant parties in Australia, were able to come together and actually approach the problem that was affecting all of us so considerably with the COVID to come together and just go with what were the best decisions at the time. And I think that seems to be or would appear to me to be the best approach that we could have and maybe the best lessons to learn because even though the timeline is different for the effects of global warming compared to COVID, but the ultimate loss of lives due to increases in health problems and loss of jobs, etc. cetera, should really engender the same level of priority and need for action.
1: I think it's an invitation for us to do that. You've got this National Cabinet. You've got a level of dialogue between state governments and the Commonwealth government and between states themselves uh, across the the party divide. Politicians, where they're cooperative and set about things as, as problem solvers, appear to be being rewarded by public opinion. Those who've taken a lead in a problem-solving nonpartisan approach seem to have been rewarded by big approval ratings Now can these habits of cooperation persist when we focus on an issue that's been very divisive in Australian politics? I'm, I'm probably pessimistic but I think it is a model that we ought to focus on and I think the leadership needs to become from the conserv- from the conservative side because they're in power, nationally and it's one thing for an opposition leader to say we need more bipartisanship but it's a government that has the opportunity of an invitation from the Prime Minister to come into their office and start talking about areas of agreement.
0: Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SCR Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the community radio network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Thanks for your company.